Tonight, straight from the source, breaking news is the longest actor strike in Hollywood history is now coming to an end. The union representing tens of thousands of actors has just reached a deal. When could your favorite shows return? Plus, Ivanka Trump on the stand for hours as the state's final witness in her father's fraud trial. What she said under oath as well as what she didn't. And the Democrat who defied the odds once again, winning re-election in a deep red state with abortion rights helping drive that victory. Governor Andy Bashir is here. I'm Caitlin Collins and this is The Source. We start with breaking news tonight because after 118 days, Hollywood actors have just struck a deal with major film and television studios. It would end a strike that shuttered production across the entertainment industry for nearly four months. The SAG-AFTRA president and former star of The Nanny, Fran Drescher, posted just moments ago on Instagram, quote, we did it. Touting a deal, she says, is three times as big as the last contract. A spokesperson for the union also just confirmed the deal, telling CNN that that strike officially ends at 12.01 a.m. Pacific time. Joining us now is Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher, who's been following all of this closely. Sarah, what is the, do we now have an idea of the shape of this deal, what the terms of this uh, tentative deal, still to be ratified, actually looks like? We know a little bit, Caitlin. They haven't re actually released the deal yet, but there are some clues. For one, we know that this deal is going to definitely stress artificial intelligence. That has been the big sticking point for actors over the past few weeks. They wanted to ensure that protections for their actors were built into the contract. We also know to the point about this being three times as big, that there's a lot of improvements on wage negotiations. One of the things that actors have been pushing for is to ensure that they are going to get paid out on streaming residuals. So for episodes that air later on, actors will get that payment. But we don't know the precise details yet. That will come likely in a few days once the actors have to ratify the agreement, essentially vote on it, to ensure that it goes into effect. Well, and artificial intelligence was such a big sticking point as these negotiations have gone on. There was a lot of concern from these actors about how their, their images, their likeness would be used. Do we have any idea of how that was resolved in this deal? A little bit. So one of the things that towards the end of these negotiations, they were really stuck on was something called sort of like a digital scan. And that means an actor can go in, get their image and likeness sort of scanned by AI to be replicated and used in the future. What the actors were fighting for and what we believe would be in this contract is something that suggests they own that scan so they can get paid out for it in the future. Of course, we don't have the final details yet, but that's what we assume is in it. And we know, you know, is this final offer that had been made by the studio heads in recent days that said, you know, this is our best and final offer. The union went back over and looked at it for four days or so, I believe. I think the question that, that people watching who are seeing this breaking news, Sarah, are, are going to want to know, you know, given the fact that movie premieres were pushed, filming of new seasons uh, had been halted. What's the what does this look like and how this actually restarts when these new movies, these new shows actually start to get made and when viewers actually get to start to see them? 
So if this contract gets ratified in the next few days or few weeks, Caitlin, then we would probably look at production starting around 2024 in January. And that's because unlike writing where you can just pick up the pen with production, you have to book venues, you have to coordinate transportation, you have to move sets. We're also heading into the holiday season, which makes it tougher. I would expect production to resume for your favorite films and series in January and things that were pushed into the first quarter of 2024. Those things might still air, but we're looking at a lot of things returning in the second quarter of the year. All right, Sarah Fisher, a lot of questions of what this is going to look like. We'll wait to see once it is ratified the final details of this. Sarah Fisher, thank you. Thank you. In the meantime, in what looked like it could have been out of a movie today, Ivanka Trump was walking out of a New York courtroom, concluding the New York Attorney General's civil fraud case that they have been making against her father for weeks now. But the legal drama is not over yet. She was the 25th and final witness for the state's case here. They rested their case after she left the stand today. She followed her father, of course, who testified on Monday, and her two adult brothers on that witness stand that you can see here from the court sketch. The attorney general making a point of talking about what it was like to see Ivanka Trump in court today. Ivanka Trump was cordial. She was disciplined. She was controlled. Um, and she was very courteous. And despite the fact that she was very, very nice and very friendly, um, the facts basically um, demonstrate the truth. CNN's Kara Scannell was inside that courtroom as Ivanka Trump was on the witness stand for several hours today. Kara, uh, what was it like to be in the room? So, Caitlin, I mean, Letitia Jones there is, <clears throat> James, is completely right that Ivanka Trump was a stark contrast from the testimony of her father just on Monday where he was combative and lashed out at times. She was very polite. She was very composed when she answered these questions today, and she was on the stand all day long. Now, she was once a defendant in this case. She is no longer. So she was just there as a former employee testifying about her role at the company. And the questions by the attorneys general's office today really focused in on some loans that she was involved with. Because remember, the allegations in this case is that the Trumps had provided inflated financial statements to get better terms on loans. So she was presented with some of these loan documents involving the golf course Doral in Miami, Florida, as well as the old post office building in Washington, D.C. And so Ivanka Trump was testifying about how she had become the relationship person with one of the bankers at Deutsche Bank who financed these loans. And she said she was involved at a high level, but she said she didn't recall a lot of the nitty gritty details of the loans and wasn't even involved that much in it. So distancing herself from the loans and negotiating them. Now, <clears throat> she'd been asked questions about the personal financial statements of her father, like her brothers, Don Jr. and Eric Trump, who testified last week. She said she didn't prepare them. She didn't know how they came together. She didn't input any information into the values for certain assets. So again, distancing herself from these very financial statements. And in one example today, they had presented with her an option she had to buy a penthouse apartment here in Manhattan in one of the buildings her father owns. And the listing price that she had for this was about $8.5 million. Well, on Trump's financial statements, for that same year, it was about two and a half times higher at more than $20 million. She was asked about that. She said she wasn't involved in it. She didn't know how they came up with it. So again, creating, trying to create some distance between her and the actual statements that are at the center of this case, Caitlin. Hmm. And she actually has different legal representation than that of the rest of her family in this case, right, Kara? 
Yeah, I mean, almost from the beginning, once this, after these charges were brought in the fall of last year, she then started a different tactic from the rest of her family. Her brothers are represented by an attorneys, but they're very working very closely with the Trump Organization team and the team for Donald Trump. She has brought in different counsel to represent her in this, and she was able to actually argue and get herself removed from this case as a defendant. Part of it had to do because she left the business in 2017 to join the White House team, so she was not around when some of these claims were still continuing, and that allowed the appeals court to drop her from the case. It was it was a smart legal move on her part to separate herself from them legally, and it instead had her here not as a defendant today, but as a witness. And when do we expect the defense to begin their part? So Trump's team will begin their defense on Monday. They have signaled that they might call Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, back to the stand to ask them questions in a, in a different way as they can on direct examination than cross. They've also signaled they're going to bring in some bankers who will testify that they didn't rely on these financial statements when they made decisions to make these loans, as well as some experts. Uh, and they have said that their defense could go until December 15th. Okay, Kara Scannell, a lot of time outside that courthouse. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And I'm joined now by former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams. Elliot, listening to what Kara said there, that there were multiple times on the stand today where Ivanka Trump was saying, I don't recall. How does that factor into how the judge is listening to that? Well, it, it all depends on how believable it was, Caitlin, and that's the tricky thing here. She had somewhat of a delicate needle uh, to thread uh, because she, number one, needed to draw some distance between herself and the Trump Organization and herself and her brothers, but also, number two, not hide from the fact that her name is, in fact, Ivanka Trump, and up until 2017, she was an executive of the Trump Organization. And so there's no measure of trying to distance herself that would really be convincing to the judge. Um, so... Look, if a witness does not recall information and that's accurate and truthful, then they ought to say that. Now, if there's a belief that the witness is actually uh, lying to the court, then certainly the court can push them for, for answers. It seemed that the judge was at least convinced by most of her answers based on sort of the readouts that we got from Kara and others. Yeah, and there's something that the Trump legal team did here that we didn't see them do on Monday when Donald Trump was in court that we haven't seen them do with the Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, the adult sons. They cross-examined Ivanka Trump after the prosecutors were done. They got up and had a line of questioning for her. Does that signal anything to you about how they plan to make their defense when they start on Monday? You know, I think so, only insofar as the defense that they're likely to bring is that, number one, accountants pre prepared this information and it really wasn't us. Number two, it's a little bit blurry and, and valuing buildings, putting valuations on them is, is pretty complicated. Uh, and, then, and perhaps even number three, this is all a joke and a witch hunt and you're coming after us. Um, and I think, you know, they oh, and also there are no victims here. This was a victimless crime. And she even today made that point. She I talked can't about remember how happy the banks were to how have happy their the business, banks were. right? And that's exactly it. It is a much, it's like, it's that same victimless crime argument, but just said with a smile and with more politeness. She was really saying that there weren't really consequences here. Now, look, even if the banks were eager to do business with the Trump family, that does not mean that they did not violate New York state law. And so it's a little bit misleading. And you heard it from all, I guess, four members of the Trump family in some way. It's a little bit misleading to say that you know, banks weren't really harmed because they may have engaged in unlawful conduct and the judge could find that. Huh. Elliot Williams, so interesting. We will all be watching closely when the defense begins uh, on Monday. Thank you for your time tonight. Thanks, Caitlin.
Meanwhile, the Democratic Party on a winning streak after what happened last night. The elections, the victories in many states and for many different policies matters. Abortion rights is once again driving voters to the polls. We're going to speak to a Democratic governor who made the issue a central focus of his re-election campaign in a deep red state and still won. Governor Andy Bashir is here next. Also tonight, for the first time in nine months, Senator Tommy Tuberville may be cracking the door open to a deal, lifting potentially that one-man blockade of military promotions. We'll ask one of his colleagues about that ahead. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, Democrats are breathing a sigh of relief, mainly because of what happened on election night last night. All Obviously, that coming on the heels of major polls about President Biden's chances in 2024 that had had them on edge for a few days. The White House today responding to that string of sweeping Democratic victories in states like Virginia and Ruby Red, Kentucky and Ohio last night. We saw the president's values and agenda uh, win big across uh, across the country last night. We don't put much stock in in polls. The president's going to focus on uh, delivering for the American people. He has an agenda that is incredibly popular, and that matters. The agenda is popular. We saw that last night. But of course, there are still questions when you look at the bigger picture of this. And yes, we are still a year out from the election on what it means potentially for President Biden, who is deeply unpopular as the leader of the Democratic Party. Right now, when you look at polls ranging from The New York Times to a new one released by CNN last night, former President Donald Trump is either beating him or within that margin of error in national and swing state polls. A big question tonight for the Democratic Party is did they win big in spite of President Biden, not necessarily because of him? The party has certainly been capitalizing on the momentum that was built ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. In Virginia, it helped Democrats hold the Senate, hold the hold the Senate and flip the House in that state legislature that the governor, Glenn Youngkin, there was hoping to change. And in Ohio, which we were watching closely last night, it became the latest red state to make sure and to guarantee a right to an abortion in the state's constitution. Also, there was this race that everyone was watching last night, a Democrat winning re-election and going back to the governor's mansion in Kentucky with abortion as part of the central message of his campaign. Governor Andy Bashir beat his Trump-endorsed opponent, uh, the very popular in the Republican Party, attorney general in the state. That's a state that Trump, I should note, held and won by 26 points in 2020. And joining me now is the Kentucky Democratic Governor, Andy Bashir, who just won re-election. Governor, last night you won by a bigger margin than you did in 2019, both in urban and rural counties. What should other Democrats learn from you about how to win in red areas that are considered generally to be Trump country? Well, I think it's all about doing your job and, and doing it well. And your job as governor is to get things done. That means you can't be chasing what 
whatever issue of the day there is in D.C., but, but be focused on where people live their lives. People don't wake up thinking about uh, President Biden or President Trump. They wake up thinking about, do I have a, a good job where I can provide for my family? Can I afford to take my kids or parents to a doctor when they're sick? Do I feel safe in my community? Are my kids getting the best education. So, you know, stick to uh, the things that matter most to people and then have a plan. Be running for something, not against someone. Have a plan on how to make people's lives better. One issue that you embraced is abortion. Kentucky has a near total ban on the procedure. I want to remind everyone who isn't in Kentucky and may not have seen it of one of the most searing ads that you ran in this race. I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable. It's powerful testimony from 21-year-old Hadley Duvall. Uh, Governor, do you think that abortion is also going to be the issue that determines your party's success in 2024? Well, certainly, uh, I've got to say that Hadley is one of the most courageous young women I've ever met. This was a platform that she wanted. She wanted to, to speak up for people who can't. And certainly in Kentucky, we have the most extreme uh, ban in, in America, where, where you know, that 13-year-old raped and impregnated by her stepfather would have no options. Now, I know that, that the law may be different in other states, but I can tell you Kentuckians overwhelmingly, regardless of party, uh, believe in the very least we need those exceptions. It's about basic empathy for somebody who, who has been violated. And I certainly hope our legislature will pass those exceptions as soon as they come back. Well, I mean, it's a Republican supermajority in that legislature. I mean, it's going to limit your power to do anything with abortion. What, if anything, do you think you can do on abortion in your state? Well, I think that the people have spoken pretty loud and, and clear. Uh, I think that the job, whether you're a Republican supermajority or a Democratic supermajority, is to do the will of the people. And when you don't, there are electoral consequences. So uh, we'll be having a lot of conversations, but at least taking this part of the issue off the table before their elections next year and 2024 would not just be politicized, but it's the right thing to do. You know, we had, what, a year ago or two years ago, two nine-year-olds raped and impregnated. Now, they, they had the option of having options. But right now, that doesn't exist. The other thing, Caitlin, is uh, non-viable pregnancies. Uh, we had a, a couple that, that uh, did a, a separate commercial, I think, for, for one of the IEs. And they talked about having a child that wasn't going to survive outside the womb, yet under our law, they would have to carry it and then listen to their child die. It's just wrong. You think there's any chance in reality that, that it, those arguments, those powerful arguments, are able to change anyone's mind? I do. I think that it's, it's less me and it's more Hadley. I think that her testimony is so powerful. I think that we can all see our, our daughters in Hadley. And she's not done. Uh, she and others are going to continue to speak up, to, to give voice to, to those that feel like they can't speak up. And that's pretty special, and she's pretty special. 
Last night was a big night for for Democrats overall, not just obviously with your reelection, but also with uh, abortion rights in Ohio, with issue one passing and just Democrats generally. It's raised questions about national politics in 2024 and what that looks like. And it comes also in a week that President Biden got some uh, pretty low poll numbers, both in a New York Times Siena poll, a CNN poll as well. What do you make of calls for for President Biden, someone that you did not mention very much on the campaign trail, to step aside from running in 2024? I fully expect the president will be the Democratic nominee. I fully expect President Trump will be the Republican nominee. And while there's a lot of chatter out there, I think that's going to be the race. We'll see. The last time that we had you on the show was back in April, and there had just been a mass shooting in yeah. your state that you were dealing with, also a mass shooting that killed a good friend of yours, Tommy Elliott, who was the chair of your inaugural campaign. You talked to me about how you said he had a great smile, that he cared so much about the city of Louisville. How much were you thinking of him last night? A lot. Um, we lost Tommy. I lost... Uh, Godfather to my kids. About uh, six months later, we all lived in that uh, same neighborhood. Uh, we lost um, our, our interpreter, Virginia Moore, um, who people uh, all around the world got to know during the, the pandemic. We, we've lost some really special people. And, and I recognize that's a part of life. And, and, and grief is the other side of, of love. The more you hurt, the more um, you love them. But I'm, I'm thinking about them a lot. Um, I think about Tommy and, and sitting at the inauguration in this um, huge fur He's hat <laughs> uh, that I, I gave him a little grief about. And we're going to keep a chair open for him. We're going to put that hat on it. Uh, I think about my friend John, who I think was standing right over my shoulder four years ago uh, when we won. So I know, I know they're looking down. Um, I know they love me. I love them, too. And uh, I will see them again. Governor Andy Bashir, thank you for your time. Thank you. Up next, some Republicans are doing a little bit of soul searching after last night's election. More on what it could all mean for 2024. We'll talk about it right after this. On one side, there are sighs of relief. The other, mostly some groans tonight. It is a tale of two parties following big Democratic victories in Kentucky, Ohio and Virginia last night, leaving many Republicans now asking themselves what went wrong. One of them might be my next guest. Scott Jennings is an alum of the Bush White House and senior advisor to Senator McConnell. <laughs> Ashley Allison is the National Coalition's director for the Biden-Harris 2020 campaign. Scott, yeah. let me start by saying you're obviously close friends with Daniel Cameron. You've held fundraisers for him. You've given him advice. You were with him last night. What does he think went wrong? Well, I mean, certainly, and first of all, I have to say, I you know, I know Andy Bashir as well, and I have a lot of respect for the campaign they ran. It was the two things you need in politics, discipline and well-funded. I mean, and they had them both, and, and, and they did a good job, and they ran their plays, and, and that's why I won. I think, um, you know, there's a number of things beyond just the, the money, but the abortion issue, I think, did play a role. Kentucky does have uh, a restrictive law, but what we lack is the exceptions for rape and incest. That became a huge part of the Bashir advertising campaign. Uh, and they stayed with it for two solid months or more on the air. And I just, you know, there's a lot of people that are strongly pro-life in Kentucky and elsewhere who think we should have 
the exceptions. And I think it I think it did have a huge impact on the overall discourse of the campaign. Did Daniel Cameron acknowledge that last night? What was his kind of thought process watching those returns come in? Oh, I mean, he, look, he was, you know, there's a lot of issues that, that were on his mind last night and this morning. I, I saw him before I, I flew up here today. Um, I mean, he ran on mostly education and crime. Bashir ran on mostly the abortion issue and economic development. So they both picked two different lanes. I think he's probably, it's probably a little too soon and a little too raw to do too much, you know, uh, issue analysis like that. But, but I think, I think when you look at the level of advertising that was run on the topic in Kentucky and in other states, uh, you saw it made a difference. And I also think we found the limits of Donald Trump. I mean, Trump played a big role in this campaign. He's a big supporter of Daniel. He got him the nomination when he endorsed him. And Daniel used Trump to help close the campaign at the end but it didn't quite get him over the hump. And there are still voters out there who uh, would love everything about uh, Daniel Cameron, except they don't love the influence of Trump on our politics. They turned out last November in the midterm. They don't like Biden either. They turned out some in Kentucky this November. We've had two straight elections of that now. I want to talk about Trump's influence on this in a moment, but you mentioned uh, what he ran on. He also tried to tie Andy Bashir to President Biden a lot. Yeah. Andy Bashir did not try to tie himself to President <laughs> Biden a lot. He he did say there he does believe he'll be the nominee to those calls to for him to drop out. What do you make of how Governor Bashir ran this race and how he wasn't, you know, he talked about the Biden policies, the battery plants, abortion, but he didn't talk about the president himself. Well, Joe Biden didn't win Kentucky in 2020, so it, it historically has not been a state where Democrats win in the presidential, but they are successful running Democratic governors. So I think it makes sense for Andy Bashir to stand as his own independent candidate and run the race that he did. He was a he is a good governor. He will be he, you know, he was really good in um, crisis responses. He talked about in your interview you just had with him about how he dealt with mass shootings. I think one thing on the Daniel Cameron front, though, um, there was this belief that because Daniel Cameron was black in some places that he would get some of the black vote that might be leaning towards Donald Trump. But a lot of black people also remember Daniel Cameron was a person who did not prosecute the police officers who killed Breonna Taylor. That Louisville uh, Police Department was a central, it became a national story, and that was under Bashir's leadership. So I think that also, you know, or under Cameron's leadership. So I think that that um, also played a little bit into the race as well. Yeah, you mentioned that last night, and I do think that's a part of this that maybe voters outside of Kentucky don't always associate with that race, but is important. Trump himself, obviously, you know, <laughs> it went from saying that Daniel Cameron was not actually that much of a McConnell guy, even though he's explicitly endorsed by McConnell, to now saying today that the reason that he lost was because he couldn't alleviate the stench of Mitch McConnell. You know, it's interesting. We had other races on the ballot last night. The agriculture commissioner was Mitch McConnell's campaign chairman, won by almost 20 points. The attorney general now, Russell Coleman, Mitch McConnell's lawyer, won by almost 20 points. Mike Adams, our secretary of state, got reelected, former McConnell scholar at the University of Louisville had the most votes on the ticket. In fact, Mike, my old college roommate, by the way, was the least <laughs> Trumpy guy on the ballot, and he got more votes than anybody running last night. I, 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 dare I say that's incorrect and that we found the limits of Trump's influence. Yeah, I'm curious quickly what you thought about what Senator Mitt Romney said today as they were doing the postmortem on Capitol Hill. This is what he told uh, our colleagues. When we're talking about some social issues, they could become highly divisive and we end up not doing as well as we could have. I think we're winning when we're talking about the economy, when we're talking about the cost of living. You think Republicans realize that? 
Well, I think social issues are economic issues. Abortion is an economic issue. And I think voters are seeing that more and more, whether you have paid uh, child care, whether you can afford those things. And so they can talk about the economy, but voters are more nuanced than people are giving them credit for right now. And I agree, though, with Romney. The culture wars are not a winning uh, path forward for the Republican Party. And if DeSantis, you know, they're debating tonight, if DeSantis were to become the nominee, he's the king of culture wars. And I don't think that will fare well for the Republican Party. Yeah, you know, we're looking to see how that... Well, we're close out yeah. of time, but quickly, Scott. Well, I, you know, it was, it was Bashir who ran ads on abortion, not Cameron. Sometimes in campaigns, you just don't have the luxury of ignoring things. And in well, Bashir's- abortion works for Democrats, clearly. Yes. And so it's hard to ignore it. Scott Jennings, Ashley Allison, thank you both for being here. Pennsylvania, also a state that we were watching closely last night. It's critical in any presidential election. It had a critical night last night. What did the governor think of it? Governor Josh Shapiro is here next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. The groundwork for success for Democrats in 2024 could potentially start with some of those victories that you saw last night in Ohio, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. It could spark some needed momentum for the top of the ticket, President Biden. Of course, there are big questions about what that is going to look like. We still don't know a year out, but we do know for Biden to keep the White House, all roads will travel through Pennsylvania and its 19 electoral votes. So let's get straight to the source tonight with Pennsylvania's Democratic Governor, Josh Shapiro. Governor, great to have you here on the show. Do you think that the success Democrats had last night, particularly on abortion, will translate into success for your party in 2024? Well, I think what we consistently see in Pennsylvania, and I think you saw it in some other states last night as well, is that real freedom continues to win. The idea that those on the other side are trying to restrict people's freedom, take away their rights. That's not a you know a formula for success. What we saw from our state Supreme Court all the way to our school board races is that people want more freedom, not less. You saw a lot of that in my race for governor, which we won with more votes than anyone in the history of our Commonwealth. And you saw that continue again last night in these important races in Pennsylvania. And I expect that it'll continue into 2024. Yeah, that state Supreme Court race got so much attention, more than, of course, one typically would. But when you look at that and you look at the other results, how do you square it being a good night for your party, for your party's policies, but on the heels of that new polling that we saw that show voters, you know, don't love the party's leader right now because he's trailing Donald Trump by four points nationwide. Which one do you think is going to matter more in 2024 when voters go to the polls then? I think you just have to keep looking at the actual data, and the data comes on election night, 2022, and again last night in 2023, freedom won, um, standing up for democracy won. That GSD attitude that we bring every day in Pennsylvania, getting stuff done for the good people of Pennsylvania, that won. And I think when you look ahead to 2024, the president's got a record of GSD, whether it's helping us repair I-95 or connecting people to high-speed 
affordable internet, making sure our roads and bridges are uh, fixed and that we're having a, a real clean energy economy boom in Pennsylvania, which is coming as a result of the president's investments. I think he's on the right side of freedom. He's on the right side of standing up for people's rights. And he's on the right side of getting stuff done. But do you think he can overcome that given, I mean, even if you think he is on the right side of that, and certainly the White House says a lot of this is we just need to message better on our policies. Can he overcome those pretty bad poll numbers a year out? And it is a year out, but it's also, you know, there's not that much, there's not a ton of time to make that up. Can that be overcome? And is it a messaging issue in your view? Well, look, Caitlin, um, it is a year from now. That's a long time. And there's also a clear contrast in this race between President Biden and the former president. There's a clear contrast between President Biden, who's investing in roads and bridges and Internet and protecting our freedoms, and the other side, the former president, President Trump, who wants to restrict our freedoms, who brought total chaos to the White House and brought chaos into our living room seemingly every single day. That clear contrast is something that I think, in, you know, will will voters will see more clearly as the race joins. And as we move forward, I think you'll, you'll continue to see the president of the United States be able to prosecute an effective case as to why he deserves a second term. So you think it'll get better as time goes on. I do want to ask you about something else that's happening because you talked about your Jewish faith a lot on the campaign trail. You've talked about fighting anti-Semitism, which we know has been on the rise in the U.S. And we've seen some really ugly instances over the last several weeks since uh, what the attacks happened in Israel. Tonight, we're hearing from some progressive members of your party, like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who say they believe that the president's position on Israel could impact his standing with young voters. What do you think? Well, look, I'm much more focused on trying to see if we can destroy Hamas's capabilities in the Middle East and making sure that Israel, standing with Israel as Israel has the right to defend itself and ensuring that what we're seeing in the Middle East doesn't give rise to anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-Arab sentiment here in my commonwealth or throughout this country. Uh, no one should use what's happening in the Middle East as an excuse uh, for their um, anti-Arab sentiment or Islamophobia, nor a justification for their anti-Semitism. And so I think what we need to do is stand with Israel as she defends herself against this terrorism. We need to work hard to make sure that those hostages are released, including American hostages. And we need to make sure that the temperature here in the United States is taken down and that everyone, no matter what you look like or where you come from, that everyone here uh, can live in peace and live in security. Yeah. But young voters were such a, a key part of the coalition that put Biden in the White House. Do you have any concerns that, that it could alienate them or that they may not show up to vote on Election Day? You know, Caitlin, I'm just not looking at this through a political prism, and I think it's certainly too soon to know what the effect of this is going to be later on with one particular demographic. And I'm certainly not the pundit. You know, you are. You can analyze that. I'm focused on making sure that in the spirit of William Penn here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we're a welcoming, warm place for all people, no matter where you worship or where you come from. It's critically important that everyone feels safe here, and that's what I'm focused on as governor. I'm not a pundit either. I'm going to take insult to that, Governor Josh Shapiro. Uh, thank you for. <laughs> I, I mean, no disrespect. I mean, no disrespect. No, we were glad to have you on the source tonight. We look forward to having you back again. Thank you for your time tonight, Governor. Thank you, Caitlin. 
Up next, we have new developments coming in on Capitol Hill. Senator Tommy Tuberville's months-long military blockade. You saw it here on the first night of The Source. The question is, is the Republican now finally open to ending that hold? We'll talk to one of his colleagues next. Tonight, Senator Tommy Tuberville appears to be potentially open to a deal that would end his months-long military blockade. Speaking with CNN today, the Alabama Republican said that he is trying to talk to the Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, about what could potentially be an off-ramp for releasing those holds. He didn't say exactly what he would agree to. He has not been agreeable with what they have proposed in the past, certainly not from the Pentagon. But he did renew his openness to potentially making a deal with them. Of course, what's important here is the context, that this all comes amid growing pressure from his own party, members and Republicans in the Senate who say that they do believe those holds from Senator Tuberville are undermining national security. I'm joined now by one of those colleagues, Republican Senator Mike Rounds, who serves on the Armed Services Committee. I'm so glad you're here tonight, Senator. Do you think that this is a real shift in Senator Tuberville's position? It, it is a shift. Uh, it, has, it is not like he has not been trying to find a path forward in the past. He has. Uh, but I think he has recognized as well that we've got probably close to 400 uniformed officers right now that uh, are waiting for either reassignment or an advancement in grade. And uh, some of them, if they're not taken care of fairly quickly, they may very well decide to retire rather than move up in ranks. And we can't afford to lose that type of experience at this point. So Senator Tuberville has been, uh, you know, he's been sympathetic to that discussion. Uh, but at the same time, he truly has a real concern with the abortion policy, which was arbitrarily imposed by the administration through the Secretary of Defense. And it's really bothered him. It's bothered a lot of us. The challenge is, is uh, finding the right way to put pressure on the administration to take out what we believe to be an inappropriate policy regarding abortion. Yeah, it's 452, I believe, is the latest number we got from the Pentagon today. I think the question is, after that meeting that Senate Republicans had yesterday, is there actually something realistic in mind to get him to, to back off of this hold? Was there anything that he didn't reject when y'all were behind closed doors? He, he didn't totally reject any of the, the offers. What, what he said was is that he would take them under consideration he recognizes that time is, 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 you know, of the essence for a number of these individuals. Uh, and at the same time, he believes that, you know, his cause is just. So right now, what we've tried to do is to find as many different options that might work for him. And at the same time, to, to you know, he's made his point. Uh, the whole country understands the fact that this department, the Department of Defense, made this change. And that change, uh, change policy that had been in effect since 1985. And to do that without legislative approval, it was wrong. And the coach made that very clear. Now what he's saying is, is look, I, I, I don't want to hurt these guys. If I can find a path forward, I want to. We've offered a couple different ideas and some, uh, some ways to show support yeah. for him. I, I think the conference itself is pretty supportive of, of his goal, but we have a real concern about, you know, the, 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 the impact that it's having on uniformed officers that really don't have any say in trying to fix the, well, uh, the, the mess that's there. Senator, as you know, uh, this is a policy that the Pentagon put in place after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. That's why the White House and the Pentagon argues they felt the need to do it. And I understand you say that you agree with his position that you don't like this policy. A lot of Republicans we've heard from don't. 
But is this the way to get what you want by punishing service members and their families? I guess that's the, the message that we've shared with Senator Tuberville, is that there should be a better way of doing it. Uh, it's different than the option that I would have taken. Uh, at the same time, you know, uh, Senator Tuberville chose this, and that's his right to do so. Now we're trying to find the best path forward. I, I truly believe that Senator Tuberville is trying to find the right path forward as well. And I, and I think he understands that, he, you know, he wants to resolve this. He told me that today, that he wants to find a path forward. We've suggested some options to him that uh, would allow him to continue to at least make the case that that uh, what they did in changing that policy was not uh, in accordance you, with the law. And would you that there could be that, some other options. Well, some Senate Democrats are maybe trying to cook up a bipartisan deal where they would make a rules change to its faster approval for military confirmation. Would you be willing to vote for that? Because they need at least nine Republicans to do so. Yeah, what they would need is 60 votes in the Senate, and it would be what they call changing a standing order. It's been done back in 2013 one time, but there are some concerns with that by most of the members of, of my conference because of the timing that they're putting this in effect. Uh, it, would, it would impact during this time in which this administration was, was in office, but it would not be continued on, and the chances of them continuing that on during a an administration change is is suspect. So, so would you vote for there's it? concern with or that. Or you're, well, you're not sure? At this, not, not at this point. Uh, look, I, okay. I think there are other options available to us yet. And we're running out of time before that might be offered by our Democrat colleagues. But over the next couple of days, we'd like to see if we can't find a better alternative. There are several that are being discussed. And I think uh, the coach, Senator Tuberville, is seriously considering them. We hope to have this resolved in the next few days. Yeah. So you are a no on the rules change. We'll see if he is a yes on changing his position. Senator Mike Rounds, as always, thank you for your time. Thank you. Also, an update from the Middle East tonight. As the Israel Defense Forces claims it has destroyed 130 of those complex tunnels that Hamas uses underneath Gaza. Of course, many obstacles still remain in that underground war. We'll give you an update next. Pentagon tonight announcing an airstrike on a weapons storage facility in Syria that they say is used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and affiliated groups. That strike, the second one in just two weeks, they say was in response to attacks on American forces who are stationed in Iraq and Syria. All of this is coming as the Israeli military provides this update, saying that it destroyed 130 tunnel shafts in Gaza since that war began, since you saw Israel's forces moving into Gaza, of course, in that forcing thousands of Palestinians to flee. The United Nations says tonight that 40,000 people have evacuated to southern Gaza just since Saturday alone. Of those who were able to make that open to the open crossing along with the Egyptian border, many of them are still in desperate need for medical help tonight. Of course, many people have been asking as this coverage has gone on how they can help. You can help in these efforts in Israel and in Gaza. Just go to CNN.com impact or text relief to 7070 to donate. These are vetted organizations that you can trust. I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. Up next, CNN's special coverage of the third Republican debate. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. 
It could be used on an upcoming episode.